house prices are falling, but remain far beyond what most people can easily afford. Social housing isn't keeping pace with need. Housing commands political attention in a way that it hasn't done for years. The government has committed to building a million new homes over the lifetime of this parliament. Labour has promised to deliver the biggest boost to affordable housing in a generation. So it's time to get Britain building again. It's time to build one and a half million new homes across the country. Housing starts double the number we inherited from the Labour Party. More homes meeting the decent home standards. Housing supply up 10% in the last year that we have figures for. It's widely accepted that we need to build more. But how do we do that? I'm Jeevan Vasaga from Tortoise, and this is Making Sense of Social Housing. Episode 3. How do we fix the problem? the heart of it I think is the lack of supply what's what's unique about the UK or unusual about the UK relative to some other economies is that there hasn't been a significant growth in the house housing supply actually at all levels and especially for social and affordable housing Charlie Nunn is chief executive of Lloyd's banking group there's a reason the bank might be able to make a difference the bank is Britain's biggest provider of finance to social housing and also the country's biggest mortgage provider It has a critical role to play to get the housing market back on track, delivering what society needs. Charlie Nunn grew up on the south coast of England, one of four kids, and he went to his local state school. The really interesting thing for me to see my local, my friends, really struggle with their parents saying they weren't going to have a home, they weren't going to have a bedroom after the age of 15 or 16. So one of the early things in my life was seeing the impact of having a safe and secure home. A safe and secure home for me is, is the bedrock on which we build our families and our communities. Right now, we're all thinking about the cost of housing. Over the last two years, interest rates have gone from near zero to 5.25%. Home buyers refinancing a mortgage last year could expect to see their payments rising, on average, by £3,000 a year. That's really significant for those customers. The context which is linked to how housing is developed, though, is that the average mortgage customer in the UK has an income of £75,000, so more than double the average income in the UK. And so it's a really significant challenge for the average customer in the UK, but it's one that most of them are able to take tough choices and afford. And it affects the government's room for manoeuvre on public spending. When you look at the government and the government's ability to provide support to homeowners, to encourage local authorities to build homes themselves... And then for housing benefit, of course, the the cost of servicing the debt for the government has gone up massively. And that's one of the constraints on the ability of the government to step in and say how we're going to support more house building and support the the housing sector going forward. Nunn was working in the tech industry and financial services as a consultant during the 2007 to 2008 financial crisis. He went into banking at the moment it was the world's least popular profession. That's translated into a mission to address the housing crisis. One of the early things in my life was seeing the impact of having a safe and secure home for me and my brothers and sisters was huge. For many of my friends, it meant they just didn't take education seriously and they quite quickly were turning towards how do they look after themselves, how do they find a place to call their homes and how do they find a job. Lloyd's is a major source of finance for construction, arranging over £16 billion in lending to housing associations since 2018. The bank has also moved into the private rental sector with a standalone business that's a private residential landlord. In partnership with developers, 
The bank is even building houses. Charlie Nunn argues the housing crisis is holding the country back. When we look at what we think will help Britain prosper, we think helping build safe and secure homes for the UK for the next decades, but over this decade, is one of the most important needs in the UK at this moment in time. In fact, one pound invested in improving the insulation and the retrofit of a home reduces their health costs by four pounds for the NHS. You see better education outcomes. So kids that don't have a secure and safe home, 25% of them get no GCSEs. That number for the rest of the country who do have a home is about 10%. So we think it's a really important part of building the foundation for a healthy and vibrant economy. The logjam around planning is a challenge the bank is looking to overcome. The national debate around planning policy has lurched around without reaching a conclusion. Sudden U-turns on big infrastructure projects have added to the uncertainty. As, As we all know, the UK is complex when it gets to planning and access to land. One of the really interesting ideas that we're working on with a number of other partners, both house builders at local authorities and housing associations, is we know that there's lots of smaller brownfield packages of land available in cities that we could build more social homes on. But the cost of doing that is higher. When you build a 1,000 homes in a greenfield location, it's much cheaper per home than if you build three small units in the middle of a city. And so we're working with some of the house builders and local authorities to say, is there a lower cost building format using modern build techniques? And then looking to work with a housing association that would be able to manage maybe 30, 40, 50 locations across a city or a town centre and make the economics work. And I think that's another really exciting way of innovating around this because many people want their social home to be in a city. That's where their families are, that's where their jobs are, that's where they see opportunity. Tom Reardon, the chief executive of Leeds City Council, agrees that this kind of cooperation could be a way forward. So maybe we need a model when we get that joint partnership between the public and the private sector where we de-risk some of this stuff but we get a better planning system that works quicker and better, but we also recognise that there are maybe returns to be made, but over a longer period of time. As we've heard, there's been a really drastic reduction in the amount of social housing. We're building a lot fewer social homes every year than we used to in the 1970s. But there's also a big change in how the state supports people on the lowest incomes. Instead of living in a house provided by the council or a housing association, there are a lot more families who now live in the private rented sector, paid for with housing benefit. This is Cara Pachiti, senior economist with the Resolution Foundation. Actually, from the government's point of view, I guess it's slightly tricky because they're in a situation where they are essentially sending money to private landlords for to support people on lower incomes to pay rents. Whereas actually, probably in terms of cost effectiveness, it would be more cost effective to have built the asset, built the social home. The government has put billions into what's called the Affordable Homes Programme. That's a scheme to allocate government grant to local authorities and housing associations to support the costs of developing new homes for rent or sale. But only 8,400 homes for social rent. Remember, that's rent at around half of local market rates were built in England last year. One of the problems is the way that housing associations work now. Here's Matt Downey, chief executive of Crisis. The finances for social housing uh, really have changed. And what we now see is housing associations far more likely to be, when they bring on additional stock, it's not for social rent. It's quite often for what's called affordable rent, which is really nothing of the sort. 
it's a it's a completely misnamed uh, housing product. What it normally means is about eighty percent of market rent, which is completely out of out of reach for people on low incomes. So housing associations are bringing forward housing stock, which is is um, is definitely used, um, but it's not for the people that most most need it. And and that's changing the way in which housing associations go about their business. It's changing the nature of housing associations. And we you know we we very much are in the space now where we need to challenge housing associations to get back to their core purpose. They were set up, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, most of them, to actually help people out of homelessness. And what you see now, because of the financial way in which they operate, is they're providing housing for middle-class families, and that's really not what they were established to do. In their defence, housing associations point to significant financial pressures, with sharp rises in the costs of repair services and construction, while their main source of income, rent from tenants, has been held below inflationary levels by the government. This is Rhys Moore, Executive Director at the National Housing Federation, which represents housing associations. There's really significant pressures on social landlords at the moment. And the inflationary pressures of the last few years have been very real. One of the big challenges is the impact of the Grenfell Tower disaster. So this is the work that we are having to do to make buildings safe after we have bought them over many years from from developers. Um, We've subsequently found that those buildings were shoddily built, built with the wrong materials and need to be put right. And that bill, uh, just on social landlords, we estimate to be around £6 billion. And there's almost no public funding available to our members to fix those buildings and to, to put right the mistakes of others, to put right the mistakes of developers. We have thousands of buildings in this country that need a lot of money to be spent on them to make them safe. And these are mainly higher buildings. You find lots of them in in the southeast and and London. Now there is a bit of public money available to help with the cost of of those buildings. The scandal is that that funding is not available to social tenants and to not for profit landlords. So if you are a private or a for profit developer or a a landlord, you can access public money to put your building right. Social landlords, social tenants are explicitly excluded from that funding. And we think that is wrong in principle, but the practical consequence is there is six billion pounds less money available to spend on making people's homes warmer, better, better, nicer places to live because we're having to spend the money on on on, on simply you know, taking down cladding and, and remediating those those buildings. Rich, why, why is that? Why is the funding not available to you, to housing associations? I mean, I think ultimately that would be a question for government and the way they structured the funding. I, I guess there is an expectation that social housing providers can simply suck up these costs and... I think government also knows that this is a responsible and well-regulated sector and we will get on and remediate buildings and make sure that they are safe. The reality is, however, that as not-for-profit organisations, we do not have many sources of income. We rely on 
rental income from social tenants and some borrowing to, to cover our costs. So this work that absolutely has to happen and is happening at pace, the costs of that is being borne by some of the poorest families in the country through their rents, through the rents that they pay. It's worth noting here that the government has made funds available to social landlords, including housing associations, for decarbonisation so they can improve the energy performance of homes. But the scale of the challenge and the cost involved is immense. Here's Charlie Nunn. At this moment in time, many housing associations are having to prioritise investing in improving the quality of their homes and retrofitting for climate change ahead of building new houses. So that's one of the challenges we're facing into. Now, there's lots of innovation happening around this, both in the use of technologies, but ways that we can retrofit homes in a more efficient way. And one great example is uh, in Leeds, uh, Lloyds Banking Group's had a chance to work with Octopus, the energy company, and Greg Jackson has supported us and also the local authority under the leadership of Tom Reardon to look at trying to retrofit 3,000 homes with a much more standardised and therefore lower cost way of providing the retrofit. Rhys Moore says there are two things the government could do that would give housing associations the confidence to invest in new homes. The first is to provide a long-term strategy on housing, you know, 5, 10, 15-year strategy, and that would include long-term certainty on rents, you know, a sensible, stable, long-term rent settlement. The other thing we need to see is a return to upfront investment in new social housing so that the cuts that were made to the Affordable Homes Programme, which is the main source of funding for new social housing, that those cuts are reversed. And so that rather than spend more and more on housing benefit, which is essentially papering over the cracks of the housing crisis, we invest upfront in genuinely affordable social homes with lower rents that over time will bring that housing benefit bill down. If we could have those two things, a long-term approach and the return of upfront investment, I think that would go a long way to allowing a new generation of, of decent social homes. We approached the department for levelling up housing and communities about what Rhys Moore said, but they didn't respond to a request for comment. Hello, I'm Giles Wittell, Tortoise's deputy editor. On the News Meeting podcast, we try to make sense of what should be leading the news with three guests who each pitched the story they think matters most. And once a month, we record a live episode in our newsroom. The next one is on the 27th of March, and I'm going to be joined by the brilliant author and podcaster Elizabeth Day. To come to the event and tell us what you think should lead the news, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. That is tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. One potential area of financial innovation is channeling money from pension funds to invest in affordable housing. That's something the government is looking at. Encouraging news, Pension Insurance Corporation recently announced that it was going to invest in helping support 1,200 new affordable homes in this city. Does he agree that pension funds could be a very important source of capital for funding for developing social rented housing around the country? Eden Valley Housing, Eden Housing, South Lakes Housing, Westmoreland Furness Council, for example. And would he agree to look at the rules to bring in greater incentives for pension companies, uh, pension investment funds, to invest in affordable housing across the country? 
Chancellor? Well, um, we are already working on, on proposals in that very area. And what I would say to him is that, broadly speaking, uh, we have one of the most robust and resilient pension fund sectors in the world, um, but we are doing a lot of work to remove the barriers to them investing back in the UK. And uh, things like affordable housing, infrastructure, our growth businesses are areas of great potential. Charlie Nunn is keen on it too. And so what kind of financing partners could be the right partner for that? And one of the areas we're innovating is how we can use pensions and pensions money, which is always 40, 50, 60 years, and make that available. Financial services can't fix this alone. It's definitely going to be a partnership with other private companies like house builders, with the housing associations, with local authorities. And it's also going to need closer collaboration with the government as we go forward if we're really going to untap or unlock the ability to build a million new social homes over the next decade. And there's another thing that we're probably not talking enough about. At the top end of the housing market, there's a massive transfer of wealth coming over the next 20 years. The use of that housing stock in terms of number of people living in empty rooms or the number of empty rooms available is enormous. So how the transfer of housing to the next generations happens over the next 20 years and how that housing stock is then used is a huge part of how housing is going to evolve and the wealth that sits in the housing for those that bought their properties in the 70s and 80s particularly is going to be untapped or potentially released into the next generations and that could provide additional opportunities for people in the next generations to buy properties or to realise the wealth from selling that property. So the problem could get worse. The risk is of the UK returning to a Jane Austen era where it isn't what you do for a living that shapes your life, but the wealth you inherit or marry into. A solution to the housing crisis can't come fast enough for Ray Clements in Liverpool and for the hundreds of thousands of people like him across the country. Ray, who we met in the first episode, who's losing his sight, has now had some good news. He's finally found a way out. I have just being accepted for a ground floor two-bedroom flat. This is a forever home for me, this. Because the training I get around it and the training in the property get, as my site disintegrates more and more, the more I become familiar with the surroundings. But it's a ground floor flat, I've met the neighbours. It's lovely, it feels like a home. The story of the housing market over the last 40 years is central to understanding the kind of country that Britain has become, an extremely unequal one where the very richest hold the lion's share of the wealth. The wealth that comes from housing is the biggest factor in that divide, and it's a pattern that's being replicated in the next generation as young people without parental help struggle to get on the ladder. At the other end of the scale, the picture is one of a housing market where the state has retreated. There are fewer houses being built and fewer houses for social rent, putting them genuinely within people's reach. Instead, people who might have been in state-funded housing are now in the private sector, with housing benefit going to subsidise landlords rather than being put into construction. Put those three things together, the struggle to become a homeowner, the erosion of social housing and the expansion of the private sector, and you begin to see the full picture of Britain's housing crisis. It's a crisis that we've normalised. We grumble about it and then let it recede into the background again. But if we don't deal with it, it threatens the fabric of society. I'll give the last word to Ellen Loudon, the clergywoman from Liverpool I met in the first episode. Well, I think one of the challenges for neighbourhoods is that lack of security. So if you've got people who are constantly moving and or being made homeless for various reasons, 
And one of those reasons would be because people can't afford the housing and or they they might not be able to afford the, the housing in that month or that those two or three months, so therefore they're made homeless. And then the cycle of that homelessness cycle starts off again. And that means that you've got a constantly moving community and the stability of, of a community is dependent on those people being settled for an amount of time and being able to make an, a personal and civic investment in, in, in that community. Even if that's visiting the same shops or seeing the same neighbour on the corner or have being concerned about the people around them, the lack of secure, safe, affordable housing means that communities lose out on that and individuals lose out on that. You've been listening to Making Sense of Social Housing, supported by Lloyd's Banking Group. With me, Jeevan Varsiger. It's produced by Adrian Bradley, and the executive producer is Jasper Corbett. Thank you for listening to the series. If you want to hear more from Tortoise's award-winning newsroom, you can search for Tortoise wherever you get your podcasts. What comes to mind when you think of Amber Heard? A liar? A survivor? A narcissist? The trial of Depp v. Heard was a global phenomenon, but I want to know, was it a fair fight? I'm Alexi Mostris, the host of Sweet Bobby and Hoaxed. In my new podcast, I'm investigating whether Amber Heard was the victim of an organised trolling campaign. Just search for Who Trolled Amber wherever you get your podcasts.